Blair couldn't wrap up Rise Against Week without you, my friend. I thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, it's always a pleasure. You are absolutely one of my favorite people on this planet. And that is no that is no horse pucky, my friend. Oh. But, but I do think that your crowd, your fans, the lovely Turn Out of Punk listeners are probably sick of me by this point. No, I think you've become part of the family. You know, they're definitely sick of me. You know, so (laughs) (laughs) I did listen to my counterparts, my brothers in arms, uh, and I thought both of those episodes were really great. Uh, You know, yeah. How I was going to ask you, like, how much had you talked to them about their journey? Like, do you guys talk about that stuff? Because, like, in Fucked Up, we all came from the exact same place, so we all know each other's journey. But, like, do you guys kind of chat about that? Because you're all from really different places. We do. And it's funny because I have something in common with all three of them separately that they don't have in common with each other. Joe and I's musical trajectory outside of like his nuanced Chicago specific thing was very, very similar in the fact that we both kind of got into punk and crossover thrash metal at the same time together. So, you know, for us, it was like, you know bad religion but also you know excel or dri mm-hmm. or beyond possession or exodus you know what i mean or 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 black flag um and then tim and i i kind of tim beyond punk really became a 90s like dare i say but like grunge sub pop guy you know what i mean so he was way into like you know sound garden but also the sort of post-punk of the 90s where it got was getting heavier like helmet quicksand failure uh shiner uh all the things jay robbins was doing in the 90s you know from from jawbox to then burning airlines you know tim was a real big fan of all of that as well and so was i mm-hmm. um you know especially like quicksand you know and joe didn't really he wasn't really into that stuff as much so i kind of through you know trying to make my own way in the band sort of found these little allegiances with these guys and then barnes you know his dad like my dad was a classic rock guy so him and i will talk all night about black sabbath and led zeppelin and the who and you know vanilla fudge and all the like nerdy nuanced shit that like the the record nerds were into back then too that wasn't so popular you know king crimson and fucking you know gary moore and shit yeah like the 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 real uh players music yeah 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 even rush like barnes and i love rush you know what i mean um but you know it's funny i was listening to all those guys and i was like you know you and me got sort of into my respective like dallas and austin punk and metal and thrash scenes but i thought of so many bands that you and i haven't talked about that i was gonna see if like you had checked out which you probably have um well well, well, i was gonna say like the one that should probably when he said joe said devastation i immediately thought of dallas devastation there was a Dallas devastation, but there was also, and, and there was like sedition in Dallas, which devastation and sedition and gamma side, that was all like rigor mortis were the bigger one. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But like, you know, there was a huge crossover in thrash metal scene, actually uncle scam and scam that was George Reagan from Hackfish. And so uncle scam was more DRI scam got more like, uh linging more thrash it was like there was a crumb suckers era into like exodus and yeah, uh yeah. they changed their name to scam and it was all george but they were playing with bands like devastation or bands like gamma side or sedition or whatever yeah 
Devastation was actually a band I bonded with Riley over super hard. Like I, I knew Riley. Oh yeah. We were like friends and stuff, but it was like when I, you know, and we were like hanging out and stuff, but when he rocked the Devastation shirt and I was like, yo, I don't know anything about this band, but I've got their record. Like let's nerd out. Yeah. And, and it was really like, uh, you know, and it's also funny. You mentioned Beyond Possession. They're a band that I think is more famous in America than they are in Canada. Well, you know, I think they just got a lot of love in Thrasher magazine. So mm. there was always an ad for Beyond Possession. And at the time, honestly, for me, I was into Possessed. I was so into Possessed that I saw Beyond Possession. I was like, oh, I wonder what they sound like. You know, it was that 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 era that we've all talked about. It was like, if it was in Thrasher or if some guy in your, one of your favorite bands wore the shirt, you just bought it. And I just remember loving them. I just thought it was, you know, of course, they were more crossover than say straight up thrash metal or straight up punk, you know, it was like that kind of thing. So, but I loved it all the same, you know? Um, yeah. And so, so in Dallas, did you ever listen to the agitators? The agitators? Like, so that's the problem with some of these names. They sound very familiar from other places, but the agitators, were they like a punk band? They were the Dallas punk band. And I'm surprised we haven't talked about them yet. And I'm the reason I'm bringing these up is because, it's funny because I was listening to Tim and Joe and they're so, you know, you guys talk so much about their scene. And it's funny how, you know, Joe's bands, like you said, Joe's bands and Tim's bands, they, the bands they grew up watching and loving and all that, they don't intersect too much. And it was the same city. Well, it's like you and Mike, you know, yeah, like absolutely. it's very much a similar relationship where, you know, in the Draculas, I think you guys have where it's like, it's it's this like slight difference in generation sure. by a few years, but there's always got to be this sort of adversarial relationship by the next generation to the previous generation. And I'm not saying that's the case with 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 Tim or Mike, but like I mean, just generationally speaking, absolutely. Like the way Tim was talking about how he got made fun of for doing a band with the guys from Eighty Eight Fingers, Louie. Yeah. You know, and in the same way, it, it feels like there's you almost need that to kind of spur on the next generation of punk bands. You're absolutely right. And, you know, Joe is four years older than Tim and I'm I'm about two years older than Mike, but we might as well have been, you know, and it was Mike was Denton and I was Dallas. Yeah. You yeah. Know, which is, you know, fuck it. it might, you know, it's 45 minutes, maybe, maybe 30, but it might as well be, you know, three days or whatever. Different and, universes. Yeah, and Dallas had its punk bands and didn't had its house bands, you know, basically. But Dallas punk band, the Agitators, they were the band that played with every punk band that came through. Like Fugazi, you, you, if a band, if a punk band came through Dallas, the Agitators played with them. And I think you would actually really, really love it. There was, there was a da uh, there was the Agitators. There was Terminal Rot. Have you ever heard Terminal Rot? That sounds vaguely familiar, and you I think I can picture a logo. Yeah. You got to find that, man. It's, it's, you know, it's just funny. We didn't talk. We, as many times as you and me have done this, we haven't talked about these like really obscure punk Dallas punk bands that probably only have a demo out or I don't think Agitators have a seven inch, but it's like that kind of mining for gold that I know just is what you live for. And I think yeah. you would also love these bands as well. Well, it's funny. Dallas is actually like a scene that I know less about even in the early years, you know, like I know, not that I'm no buckets about, austin or houston but i definitely because of you know really red or or with um in the case of like all the austin bands like the big boys and things like that but sure. like there's a couple bands i've heard of from dallas and i definitely have some old punk records from the, the dallas bands but like oh, a ton. there's not yeah. a fuck 
you know, it was like the Nerve Breakers were the sort oh, of. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. They were like the ground zero punk band that, you mm-hmm. know, open for social, uh, for uh, Sex Pistols. and stuff. And... Yeah. And, and famously open for the Sex Pistols at the Long, Long uh, Horn Ballroom with where Sid, you know, they, they opened for that show. And, oh, shit. Uh, was that the San yeah. Antonio one? No, it was Dallas. So they did that. Is that the one? Have you read Kathy Valentine's book? I I've started. I haven't read all of it, but yeah, okay. but I, but it's um, I listened to her on on here actually, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and my brother toured with her. Uh, the Toadies toured with. She has a band called the Blue Bonnets here in town that are great, um, and they play with. Her. So my brother met her and you know kind of picked her brain, of course, and mm-hmm. nerded out. But no, it was Longhorn Ballroom was in Dallas, and um, the Nerve Breakers opened that show, and then Barry Cuda, who was the like the guitar player for you know and like also this sort of sage of punk rock in dallas he started a band called the yeah yeah yeah's after that uh the original also, yeah yeah yeah's original yeah yeah yeah's yeah, yeah they yeah, were yeah. great um but you know there, there wasn't a shit ton even like you know austin is so famous for you know big boys and the dicks and then when you get into the eight like later 80s and 90s the whole emos crowd that got you know that weird sort of ed hall the cherubs the yeah, fuck emos yeah. uh the motards you know it got it wasn't you couldn't really i mean you could call it punk but you could, it's punk the way sst record stuff was punk you know some of it was yeah. you know like zoog's rift or whatever you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, that stuff was really well documented because of the labels that were putting out the records grant syndicate yeah yeah and and also because of maximum rock and roll and Flipside writing about these bands like whereas the dallas stuff short of you know obviously the toadies becoming massive crossover band and tripping daisy too right they were oh yeah, yeah and then and then and hagfish obviously you know grinding it out and, and kind of making a name for yourselves like the hard way in punk there's not really like a lot of stuff that kind of got well known outside of that it's true i and you know no one saw the toadies the toadies were on that grass records label out of the 90s like there was a that label like- is that label is hollowed on here because like yeah. commander cody like the uh pre uh um um uh, uh bright eyes band oh yeah 15 yeah. was on that like there's so many that's you a know. cool label and they did they did baboon which were also a denton band and they might have done some brutal juice which we talk about almost every time i'm on here that was one band you know me and mike intersected with brutal juice because they were just the band and but they had they had releases like on alternative tentacles and they and- did and they might have had something but i know grass picked up a few of those but they toadies were just a grass records band that like were super weird and didn't fit in anywhere, really weird, dark songs. And then they become the biggest fucking band out, out of out of there. But, you know, again, it wasn't like listening to Tim and Joe. I just realized, you know, how vast and and multilateral the Chicago scene was. And I get a bit jealous because I'm like, fuck, you know, the bands we had were great in Dallas and in Austin because I'm like a daywalker. I'm both. You know what I mean? Um, but but and the bands I, I, I did have, I just absolutely loved. Um, and they nurtured me just fine, you know, from if whether it was thrash metal like rigor mortis or, you know, punk like scratch acid or whatever, you know, was down here in Austin. But yeah, man, it uh, I I'm, I just started thinking, I was like, fuck, we never talked about agitators. We never talked about, uh, you know, Gamma Side or any of these other bands in, in those scenes, you and me or Terminal Rot. Shit. Well, that's why I think Chicago, it's it's weird how the shift happens. Because, yeah. like, in the, in the 80s, it's not like that. Like, there's a lot of cool bands from the Chicago in the 80s, but, like, uh, it hardly feels like the epicenter of, 
like American hardcore. Whereas in the nineties, it really becomes that like you have microcosms for every scene and weirdly, like, you know, once again, I think we talked about it on the episode with, but like you have that in Los Angeles, but Los Angeles is so spread out. You have yeah. that in the Bay, but in the Bay, it's kind of weird because of Max Rock and Roll being there. And it's like a little bit different how everything operates and same with like in New York, but like Chicago, everyone's on top of each other. And there are these like intersections where you can be like, oh shit, like, like Dan Panic's first show was seeing James Eha and like uh, the Poster Children's punk band. Right. The, and by the way, Joe said it too. God, what a fucking great band the Poster Children were. Great band. Yeah, completely forgotten too in a weird way. You know? Yeah. And then that drummer, um, Johnny or John, went on to do Tortoise. Uh, the, the original drummer. I don't know if he's original, but I know he was in. But the reason I know the Poster Children, they came through Dallas and Hackfish played with them. It was Hackfish and, and fucking Poster Children to weird. play like five people. <laughs> this might have been 92. No one knew who either one of our bands were. It was a tree show at like on a Tuesday. And then they came back and stayed with us. And then we were just friends from then on out. That's a, it, Well, it's funny because they're like, they were on, I guess, Sub Pop. They had a single on Sub Pop or maybe a, a, yeah. some sort of release on Sub Pop. And they definitely, it felt like the, the big shifts that happened, the seismic shifts that happens. And I think that's like, comes down to the difference between eras is like pre-Nirvana, post-Nirvana. Like if you were... Yeah. Yeah, sure. Into it pre-Nirvana, and then if you got into it kind of like in the wake of Nirvana and then ultimately the wake of Green Day and all that kind of stuff, I think that's like a huge generational divide. But like kind of like by 92, pre-Green Day kind of like taking over and the offspring and all that stuff, there's like this huge dip where like it's oh, like sure. all the alternative explosion happens and then not very many people go to those shows. Well, it was such an amazing time because I remember, you know, that – say poster children record flower plower which is fucking amazing and then quicksand slip and then my bloody valentine loveless and then you know yeah. like all of it and it, it felt like we were the way that like guys that are older than me like say bill stevenson or whoever that era in the 80s of that musical awakening where it was coming out of punk rock where every band was just expressing themselves however they knew how and no one sounded the same we kind of had that a bit in the early 90s and then, like you say, after Nirvana, you were either this, this, whatever grunge was, and that became sort of homogenized in a, in a bit, in a bit of a way, and or whatever the West Coast punk rock sound was. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There wasn't that sort of experimentation or it, it was happening in the 90s, but it was getting, you know, thinned out less and less and less. And then we got into the 2000s where you either sounded like one thing or the other thing, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of that experimentation. It was almost that, that, that youthful exuberance of, I got handed an instrument and I'm just going to make noise and, and figure out how to play it the way I play it, you know, which is like, you know, like what Sonic Youth have always said that they kind of did, you know, they're going to detune it and play it with a drumstick or it's like, if you've never seen somebody play guitar or write a song or whatever, you're just winging it. And that's what a lot of that music felt like. It's just such an exciting time, you know? Yeah, like, if, especially when you, like, lump in, you know, the stuff that's kind of happening with in the UK and, like, sort of this the shoegaze stuff and sure. all this kind of stuff that, like, it feels like to me that's the, that like, the stuff that, you know, what like, Bill Stevenson would be talking about, like, kind of post-punk throughout the 80s, all this experimentation that's kind of happening. And then, yeah, the, the, the explosions happen and very much the sounds that get picked up on are these like two very defined sounds being the West coast kind of punk sound or the Seattle grunge sound. 
Yeah, uh, you had like you had like two choices. Yeah, and you know yeah. here in Austin, I mean, fuck. Before emos, there was the Canyon Club or the Cannibal Club. I'm sorry. Um, that Hagfish in 1991, we had a battle of the bands there, and so they asked us to come down. It was like so we drove like idiots. We drove down there. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. But the night we got there, we got there the night before, and the Melvins were playing, and they were touring that that um they kind of did the kiss solo records you know yeah. like the buzz they were touring that and joe uh god damn it the bass player i just I, I know his name but anyway and it blew our fucking mind like we had heard of the moments i remember i dude i was 17 i asked king buzzer look what what label are you guys on and i was such a fucking moron he goes uh boner records which it was his label and i thought he was fucking with me i was like all right dude whatever you know <laughs> fucking idiot but the scene down here in austin at that time you know emos was like i just had to do a blurb um eric hartman who is emo actually uh this is his nickname he's writing a book about it and uh he had me just give a quote now i didn't know how to do it because it was like nowhere was like that place it was texas cbgb's you know mm -hmm. absolutely where you go into a place and there's original coop and frank kozik paintings and you can see the brushstrokes on the wall you know, it seemed like every night there was either an AMRAP band, a trance syndicate band, a sub pop band, a grass records band. You know, it it was just the coolest place in the world. But people there were so inviting and warm. And, you know, they were all misfits, just like we were. And it, whether it was Emos Houston, the Orbit Room in Dallas, which was an Emos or the Emos down here in Austin, you know, and we actually started playing there. I felt like we were like big time. You know, we made it. That's all we cared about, you know. Uh, did you ever get to go to, did fucked up ever get to play emos before it closed? Like the, the, the original location. Oh yeah. No. Some of my favorite memories of being in Austin were in emos. And obviously by the time we're playing there, it's like post fuck emos. Right. So it's already like a sure. legendary spot that I like, you know, had read about. And I think mm -hmm. also the other seismic shift that's kind of happening in music is the shift of Austin becoming kind of like a music capital in, in alternative music because South by Southwest is becoming more and more of a force that by the time you know, I'm going down there. It's just before we started playing South by Southwest, but South by Southwest was like that. That was the con film festival of music. You know, that's where it, you went no, to get was. seen. And what's crazy is I remember that in the 90s, in the early 90s, it was just Sixth Street. Every bar on Sixth Street would have a showcase like Hackfish did a showcase. I remember walking by some weird pool hall and Sublime were playing and no one knew who the fuck they were, but it was just that. And it just, it, the gradual, like how big it started getting and taking over and the corporations moving in and all that shit. And, you know, it, I hate to be that guy, like, you know, back in my day, it was so different or whatever, but it really, really was, you know, now it just eviscerates the city and like, you can't fucking get anywhere for about a week or two, you know? Yeah. Like there was, a, we got, by the time we got there, the, the corporate involvement had already kind of just started, but it was still very much like label showcase driven, you know, like right, the label right. still had the, like, you know, you'd play a label showcase. Yeah. And it's like, and it was kind of like back in the nineties, it was honestly for bands to get discovered and signed by whatever label not just major labels it was like you could get discovered and signed by your favorite indie label they were all there somebody was there and that that was what it was good for and then it just became like you know the major labels way to show the industry who they were going to be pushing this year and that band was probably going to be dropped by next year south by southwest but <laughs> let's go ahead and give it a shot you know it's funny you mentioned fuck emos 
so Sean Powell, the drummer from Fuck Emos, is now in the amazing band Surfboard. I don't know if you know about Surfboard. Have you? Oh, Surfboard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I had no idea that connection of that Fuck Emos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean, the drummer in both, he was the drummer for Fuck Emos. And I remember Fuck Emos, no band silent like that. For people that don't know, there was a band called Fuck Emos. And it was because the, the legend is that they were trying to play Emos and Emos wouldn't let them. So they call their band Fuck Emos and then they get a show there. Well, and then they became like the house band there. But the singer sang with a child's toy that made his voice like four four octaves too low. So he sounded like this. Like I can't even do how low it was. But he always had it on. He always sang with it. And it was fucking awesome. It was so hysterical. And um, Sean is just the drummer. I, I He's one of my favorite fucking people in the world. He's got this real crazy infectious laugh. And now he's doing surfboard. Yeah, he's out in L.A. And I, I was just talking to that guy. It's just funny. You mentioned them. And I was like, oh, shit. I didn't know if you if you knew that. Oh, I was. I had no idea about that connection. But I was a huge fan of them. They were kind of like that era where I'm kind of getting super into underground music and reading about this legend of, yeah, as you're saying, the band that that, you know, called themselves a diss. Yeah. On, the, on the venue you know it became uh yeah it was infectious you know the legend was yeah. definitely infectious i remember the the moment there was that you know like the moment that i think that made our band was going to south by southwest you know i like saw I, you south by southwest actually that's where i met you yeah yeah i remember meeting you in the alley and it was it, it yeah. was just like hustling super fucking hard I think I hugged you like within five minutes of meeting yeah, you. Yeah, he did hug you after. Yeah, I think I told you, uh, you're like, oh, I'm Zach Blair from uh, Rise Against. And I'm like, but from Hagfish. Uh, you're like, fuck that. You're a fucking hatchet. I was like, we're friends for life. That's all <laughs> exactly. Friends for life. Did you, um, uh, you know, Joe, Joe was like, you know, we were talking and Joe was like, man, I think I might have stumped Damien. I had a band he had never heard of. And uh, he was like, you should bring up Agony Column to Damien. Have you heard Agony Column? Okay. You're, yeah, like you're yeah. smoking your Gandalf pipe. <laughs> you're on the show. I don't smoke with guests normally. I feel relaxed enough for you, Zach. That I, oh, I, I love you. you. Fucking, I want you to be you, baby. I want you to, to let it go. Let it go. I feel um, I feel out of respect for most of the guests, especially the straight edge guests that I owe to them to be um, somewhat <laughs> on their level during the course. Well, of I'll tell you something right now. I might be a guy that's never smoked or drawn drugs. My dad smoked more pot than like the whole world has made. And he smoked it constantly. <laughs> so don't even fucking worry about it. Um, no agony column. And you know, what's fucked up is like, Joe was like, you need to bring up agony column. I was like, yes. Cause I, I used to go see agony column all the time. Yeah. For those that don't know, agony column were like very Texas thrash. I don't know how to explain that. Like the singer's name was devil chicken. And he wore like the union suit, like the red Dr. Denton, with the ass flap and shit we're like what, you know, what was boot. the label they were on that's what i'm looking up right now that's what's interesting but you can only find their shit i could not find it anywhere i could only find it on youtube i mean i'm sure you can find it on discogs or whatever but i remember the bass player had a bass that was the like almost it was shaped like a coffin and it was fucking like seven feet long it was so long <laughs> and i would i've seen them open for rigor mortis i've seen them open for so many bands there was another band, thrash band in Dallas and uh, Austin called Watchtower. Did you remember Watchtower? Did you ever hear? I don't that? know if oh, I don't know if I know Watchtower. The only reason actually now that I know about Agony Column is because they did that Metal Blade record. Oh yeah, 90s, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think right. had pretty good distribution. Which I should be able to find that. I can't fucking find. You know, speaking of Riley and the the Power Trip guys, Art Riley, uh, Gale, R.I.P. Yeah. Those guys' knowledge of of texas thrash and metal belies like their age because those dudes 
have the agony column records, mm-hmm. have the watchtower, the gamma side, the sedition. They know it all. They have it all. And it's like, dude, I was going to those shows buying those fucking records. How the fuck do you guys have? Because I can't find them. You know, there was this like brief period. And I think it's kind of changed now because now there's just so much information out there that it's like it's impossible to kind of like focus in the same sort of way i think or maybe it's now maybe even it's more hyper focused than it was but there's that brief moment where like all of a sudden all this stuff is accessible maybe you can't hear it but you can find out about it and start trying to track it down because of the because of the internet and finding like you know and so i think that was like my era as well is just becoming like super versed in the local scene like I knew yeah. about everything, you know, in a way that I wouldn't have been able to in another generation. I'm finding myself just for nostalgia's sake, wanting to go back. And because those records were so fucking good. I remember I remember seeing that band. I keep talking about Gamma Side and Sherman at a place called The Electric Company. Uh, it was such a cracker place. But with Pantera, when they had first gotten Phil and Selmo, and we didn't like Pantera because they were glam. Yeah. They had a singer named Terry Glaze. They were they were spandex. They did Van Halen and like, you know, Skid Row covers and all that shit. And then they got Phil and somebody goes, dude, Pantera played last night and they were doing Creator and Slayer covers. And I'm just like 13 years old at the mall. I couldn't even get into this fucking place. But I was like, you got to be shitting me. So the next time they came, they had that band Gamma side with them. And we went and saw them and they were fucking amazing. It was such a great I, Dallas and Austin's punk scenes were good, but their metal and thrash metal scenes were fucking ridiculous. I think that kind of happens, you know. I kind of think like one kind of wins out and gets most of the people involved. Like, there's obviously places where where you could sustain both, right? But like, if you look at you know Toronto, it's kind of the same way here. You know, like we have some great hardcore bands, but nothing compared to like Slaughter and Mal Havoc and Sacrifice mm-hmm. and like all oh, this kind of like Razor and. Yeah, you know it's funny sacrifice and razor and todd kowalski from yes like, always posting about sacrifice and razor and i love those bands too but then he just posts it's almost like that dude has my exact record collection or i have his because the shit he posts i'm just always like god damn it todd you're reading my fucking mind here buddy you know what was and that course, era right you guys were, well and i think it's i mean cut you off there but you guys are all part of that same kind of like Mm-hmm. that era of of a person getting those records you know and it's amazing how universal some of those records are as they hit you know like they really it, are man they really are it's the same shit and i i would I, be hard i bet you todd is into these these bands i'm talking about you know as i'm thinking about it that band sedition i keep talking about their guitar player was the guy i replaced in guar he was so great <laughs> and mike scotia from rigor mortis had joined ministry and he got his buddy pete from sedition in guar and then i replaced pete and the bass player for fucking rigor mortis was the beefcake when I was in Guar. Yeah. Anyway, I talk you know, about the same shit every time I'm on your podcast. Well, that's, I talk about the same shit all the time. It's like listening to a song. There's like a chorus, you know, there's a certain <laughs> sort of things that become like <laughs> repeated <laughs> at nauseum on this thing. You know, I'm not sure your listeners are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You like, punk, you like thrash metal. You like, metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, but that's, that's what makes this thing so fun is the fact that there are these, like, you know, the repetition is what brings comfort. You know? Absolutely. I, I fully agree. I agree. I'm just like, I'm just looking up the line of a ministry and it's like, you could kind of go through ministry and you know, that six degrees of seven Kevin Bacon. Gig. Oh yeah, dude. Well, dude, that, that mind is a terrible thing to taste lineup. So the, the band he toured with, and then they ended up recording, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. I know it was, I know it was Mike Scotia. It was Terry bones from discharge broken bones. It was William Riflin, I believe. 
and Ray Washam, I believe, that had been in Scratch Acid, who had moved to Chicago. And he had also been in the Big Boys. <laughs> right? And then yeah. uh, Kevin o Nevek Ogre from Skinny Puppy um, and Paul Barker. And I might be leaving some of them out. And those, I know, they had two drummers. And I know William Riflin was one of them, Bill Riflin. And I'm, I'm pretty sure at the same time, it was also Ray Washam just ridiculous band they had the, the chicken wire on the front of the stage and all that i just remember that from 120 minutes like watching those live things well and and bill rifflin like he was in like um that seattle band that's like the pre-screamers band that's also nikki six was in that that el duce was in oh shit i did not know that yeah like you could like i think sit here and through ministry just do a map and connect every kind of band you know, I, like, well oddly enough i have a weird connection through through mike through scotia who was like yeah. their guitar player from from that tour on that crazy fast hummingbird double picking and it's like i asked him i was like i've never seen anybody play as fast as you and he was like well i did speed for like 20 <laughs> years and just and just practice double picking i was like oh okay well that's <laughs> that's one way to do it performance enhancing drugs yeah, that dude went out like a Viking, man. He passed away on stage with rigor mortis in the middle of a guitar solo. Holy he just fuck. He just uh, Casey, my my one of my best friends, who's the beefcake, the mighty and Guar. Rigor mortis had gotten back together. And we're playing some shows. He said he was in the middle of a lead. He looked over and he said Mike just raised his head in the in the air and closed his eyes like he was you know and just fell backwards. And that's amazing holy know, terrible man. but but like it's terrible but if you gotta go that's how you, you want to go i exactly i heard that uh mark sandman or sandman from uh morphine also died on stage at he a did. festival yeah he did it's like that's how i want to go man i was telling somebody somebody was like you know one day when you retire i was like whoa 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 i'm gonna fucking die up there what are you talking about <laughs> That's that's how I'm going, man. I, there ain't no fucking retire. You know? There's been wrestlers that have died in the ring, and it's very yeah. much like that's the thing. It's 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 yeah. That's how how else would you want to kind of go out? Was that you that it was one of the hearts? Right, he fell. Oh well, that definitely Owen Hart. That was definitely a tragedy. But like there were certainly wrestlers that got old and died in the ring as, as, like, the ring. as older guys. You know, that's what we're gonna do, Damian. Me and you, buddy, we're gonna die in the ring. <sighs> I don't know. I got to get back in shape or I might die in the ring on the first doubt back on playing shows. Uh, you guys start with son of the father. That first scream, you just go oh, down. Boy. Like, get right over. <laughs> that would be a way to go, though, man. Wait, definitely. You know, you go out, you go out with a memorable show. Fuck yeah. I, yeah. I think it's 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 amazing when you look at bands that um, survive that, the loss of a member, you know, yeah. and, and there's been like bands that kind of consistently have uh found a way to transcend it but like i think losing someone on stage would be a very hard thing to come back from i don't know if that would be oh my god well yeah i could only could you imagine dude it's in the I mean... aftermath that i would like as much as i want to go out on stage and i'm like oh then they'd have to move my body all these people would be screaming it really wouldn't be nearly as romantic as i hoped Wait, before the internet goes crazy and calling me out for being a poser, it's son the father, not son of the father. I, okay, I well, I, I didn't even know, so I'm glad you corrected me. There you go. Me. There you go. <laughs> Listen to the fucking poser trying to be cool. Uh, no, don't worry. That is... Uh, it's son the father. And, it, it, and it's a brilliant song. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. I definitely... Um, 
am looking forward to playing music again. I haven't played yeah. anything in so long. I'm looking long. forward to seeing you play music. Yeah, you're, we're not going to uh, – we're you're back on tour at the same time. We are. We are. And uh, thank you so much for uh, having this 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 Rise Against Week. We really appreciate it. And it was oh, nice awesome. to hear those two guys. Because, you know, I'm usually doing interviews with one of those two guys and not <laughs> – you know, I'm thinking about my next answer and all that shit. And I'm not listening. So it was really odd to take Cause I had interviewed both of them as well on my podcast, which I've interviewed you as well. Yep. Yeah. And Tim even said it on my podcast. Like, this is fucking weird. You know, that you're asking me questions and my podcast is with Mike Weeby and it's not as structured or good as this, nor will it ever be. It is fucking flying. By the <laughs> it's fun. No, that's the thing is like, turn it a punk is almost like, homework sometimes i think like people come on and it's just like oh god get ready we're gonna do the the exact like memory work that you've probably well, been you, dreading and you also give me a lot to to kind of you do give me homework i go like fuck i need to check out all that shit he was just talking about you know because you've turned me on to so many bands um yeah man and so i i was flattered and uh, honored that you want me to do it again oh i appreciate anytime man because this is a obviously a huge fan of your and mike's podcast but like before you guys had a podcast you were you were turned into a punk family um i'm sorry my wife is dancing right now (laughs) (laughs) all Um, right well i i've kept you long enough my friend i should let you this was a bumper episode it was good right it was was great it was perfect it was a perfect end to rise against week thank you man uh well i love you as always too buddy it's great to talk to you zach and and hopefully get to see you in person give you a hug yeah yeah absolutely i mean i mean you will probably be in the states while we're touring correct yeah we're gonna be uh you know i I think both out on the road at the same time but i think we'll be coming to austin hopefully you guys come to toronto and you know yeah yeah well let's see if those shows intersect or something because you know you got to come out if you have a day off it's anywhere near ours you know it's descendants (laughs) and us that's going to be great yeah it'd be pretty awesome (laughs) pretty amazing all right i love you buddy (laughs) love you zach Uh, take care man